Welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Dr. Sarah Karens, Licensed Psychologist, who will be discussing her practice and area of specialty, Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing, or EMDR. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so interested in learning more today. So why don't we start with uh, what are your credentials and experience? Yeah, so I'm a licensed psychologist and I am a certified EMDR therapist and EMDR consultant. And when you say experience, what do you mean? What, what would you like me to like, share with you? I mean, as in depth as you want to go, like, you know, where did you do like uh, practicums or internships or like what, you know, what kinds of things have you um, focused on in your career? Absolutely. So um, I did my undergrad at New Mexico State in women's studies. And I think it's not called women's studies anymore. I think it's called gender studies. Yeah. Um, now that we've moved towards that, which is really big positive, but yeah. old and that's what we did back then, which you know, we know better now. Um, we're doing better now. And then I moved to the Seattle area and did my master's and doctorate at Northwest University, which is a small college in Kirkland, right in the Seattle area. Um, and then let's see, where did I do my experiences? I did my first practicum at Community Mental Health, um, which anyone who's worked in Community Mental Health knows is a lot. Um, yeah, okay. don't, don't, don't even get me started. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think if you haven't had an experience with community mental health as a professional, like, oof, you're missing a whole a skill set. Oh, yeah. I yeah. think, you know, I agree completely. And it's also there's a lot of empathy just in understanding um, the clients that that go to community mental health mm -hmm. and also the barriers to care, the barriers to access. Um and just also like that whole area of our field, right? And like the burnout in with therapists and being overloaded and there's just so much there. 
Um, so that's where I started, which I, I really feel blessed for that experience and saw all different kinds of, of clients there, just kind of whatever came in the door. And then I worked in a um, private practice, a group private practice that was focused predominantly on serving the needs of clients who couldn't afford services. And so I worked under a psychologist who basically set up a training center in, in private practice. It was all focused on education and allowing mm -hmm. clients to pay what they could afford. And that was like set as they came into treatment, but some people paid $5. Some people, they had an arrangement where like they could bake cookies every two weeks and bring that to the group. And that was their payment. Right. So everyone was very unique in that. And we had people who came in and, you know, paid a hundred dollars. That's what they could afford. Um, and that was a phenomenal experience. Um, I saw all different kinds of people in that practice. Um, and I also got to use EMDR a lot in that practice. Um, actually the best supervisor, one, one of the best, I shouldn't, shouldn't say that, but like, he definitely like steered me into the direction of being myself within therapy, which has been such a powerful experience. Um, and then I did my final internship in school up at Western Washington University in their counseling center and saw students who, who went to school there. And that was a really incredible experience um, and very different because you do brief therapy typically. Mm -hmm. And so you'll see people for like three sessions and you know maybe a handful of people you'll see for the whole year. And we did a lot of group therapy there, which was a, a new experience to me really. And that, that was an incredible opportunity. And then I did my postdoc. So um, psychologists in Texas are required to do a one-year postdoc post-graduation as provisionally licensed um, therapists. And I worked under Dr. Christy Sprawls in Austin. So I moved to Austin. Um, and she is a, a well-known EMDR trainer and um, educator in EMDR. And I worked out of her practice, which was phenomenal because I only did EMDR. I only saw clients who were seeking EMDR and I really got more immersed in, in this world um, and, you know, assisting in small group facilitation at her trainings. I, I just can't say enough good things about that experience. It really has set up um, the opportunities that I have now and how I kind of envision like what my practice looks like. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I've been. Yeah. That's lots awesome. Of Lots of cool stuff. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so uh, your practice, you have your own practice, correct? Mm -hmm. Do right. you practice, is the practice under your name or is there uh, an LLC name? Yeah, so the practice is called Karen's Therapy and Nutrition, PLLC, and it's a group practice. Okay, cool, cool. So at your practice, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? I think that's a really good question. And I think there's probably a lot of different answers in our field, but at our practice, we, the therapist side, we do not accept insurance. Our nutritionist just started getting paneled and is taking United insurance, which is really exciting. Um, we don't accept insurance for a number of reasons. One, I feel like it limits in some ways it limits access to care because how do I want to put this? I want to like keep it PC in my opinion about insurance, right? Especially all the things that have happened in the pandemic. Um, I think they limit access to care because they only reimburse for certain diagnoses. Mm -hmm. And also it mandates oftentimes that you must give a diagnosis. And mm -hmm. if someone doesn't fit a diagnosis, they may not be granted reimbursement for care. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I also feel like it dictates the type of care that people get, mm-hmm. the duration of care, and it also is very pathologizing. Mm-hmm. So I don't work with insurance. Um, I provide super bills, which I think a lot of therapists do, which is something that people can submit to their insurance companies. Um, I have, I do work with a lot of people that have, you know, come to our group in discussing with their insurance providers kind of ways to potentially get out of network benefits because Mm -hmm. of what we do here. It's very specialized and there Mm -hmm. aren't a lot of providers and insurance companies are typically, um, required to be able to provide the services and the care that, that their clients need. And so it's kind of a loophole that some people can kind of get granted that. Um, and so, no, I don't do insurance. I think they also like really minimize the amount that they pay therapists and, and it increases burnout, Mm -hmm. right? Because then clinicians have to see a higher number of clients in order to make their living, and then we're not providing us quality of care. So it's kind of like both sides, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's if you have out-of-network benefits. You know, some plans don't include out-of-network benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find, do you ever contact insurance companies about working with them out-of-network? Out or is that something the client does? Um, so I have minimal experience like working with insurance companies in general, but I will say that I feel like a really important part of my role in that process is to advocate for my client. Mm -hmm. And so I do, if someone has insurance, I really like to open up that discussion and be a part of that team, right. And, in figuring out what that looks like for them. Mm -hmm. Right. And making sure that they can get the most out of the insurance company, as far as supporting what they're trying to do because insurance companies are kind of notorious for saying, I don't know, and passing you on to someone else and taking hours and hours of time, <laughs> right? Don't even get me started. <laughs> I know, I know. even for super bills, like super bills getting denied because they don't have the right codes. We can't just call the insurance company and say, hey, what code do I need for telehealth that you're gonna accept? They're like, I don't know, look it up online. Well can't just do that typically so well the funny thing was with one insurance company at the beginning of the pandemic they posted how to bill for telehealth online and Mm -hmm. then after having like claims processed weirdly and stuff happen I called and they're like oh well you're supposed to bill this way and I'm like well but (laughs) this is how you were telling people to bill and now you're saying this so then Mm -hmm. I had to resubmit a whole bunch of claims and then it took much longer to process it was just it was awful Mm -hmm. Um, yeah it's just it's a big runaround and I think I'm hoping I'm crossing my fingers for everyone that like things have changed a little bit during the pandemic and not necessarily in a good way but we've seen things change and I think it's come to light the problems with insurance more Mm -hmm. to a um a general awareness. And I'm hoping we see some change because I think people want something different. They need something different. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that telehealth, for example, um, increases accessibility like 110%. You know, people who typically wouldn't have been able to go to therapy because of their work schedule now can go sit in their car on their lunch break and meet with their therapist, you know, like, um, it's awesome. So, um, 
do you have sliding scale given that you're you're mainly private pay? Yeah, so I think that's a great follow-up question. So how I um, how we kind of offset that is mm-hmm. everyone in our practice accepts reduced fee, right? And that just depends on what's available at the time. Um, I will say that I have clients on my caseload that pay forty dollars. I have a pro bono spot, right? That's very important to me and our group to increase access to care and quality care. And I feel like on our end, like with the reduced fee, like kind of behind the, behind the curtain, right? Like those reduced fee spots are typically about or less than what the insurance company would reimburse for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we, as part of our group, we require everyone to accept a certain number of reduced fee clients. Super important. Yeah, totally agree. Um, do you have weekend or evening appointments available? Um, everyone in our practice sees people in the evening, at least, um, you know, a few days a week, because again, increasing that access to care, a lot of people, you know, they punch the clock from nine to five. It's changed a little bit with the pandemic and working from home. But, you know, if we can't provide services after that five o'clock hour, like a lot of people won't have access to care. Um, Personally, I have been known to work on the weekends. Um, I do what's called marathon sessions with EMDR. And usually I reserve um, weekend spots for those types of sessions. Um, But it just depends on the need. Um, I typically don't work on Saturday or Sunday, unless I'm doing like something pretty extensive, right? Like multi-hour sessions. Gotcha. Okay. Um, is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? Do you want to guess what my first career was? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You've got me there. So I was a licensed cosmetologist. Okay. And I did hair for about 10 years. Very cool. Yeah. It, it was a fun career, like, right. The armchair psychologist job. Yeah. Um, it was very fun. I liked it a lot. I, I would say I don't miss it, but I loved it when I did it. Well, standing on your feet all day is hard. Mm -hmm. It is hard. Um, but I like, I really liked that connection with people. Right. And also like, hopefully making people feel good about themselves, making them Mm -hmm. see like, you know, that beautiful piece of piece of themselves and being in, in that field, they call it being a day maker. You should open up a practice where you do hair and therapy at the same time. (laughs) And when you botch someone's haircut, like, you know, what is that bringing up for you? You Do you feel like that's impacting our relationship right now? (laughs) Where are you feeling that in your body? (laughs) I think that would have to be in the informed consent. Yes. (laughs) And like a a release of liability. Yes. But it would be a cool service. Yeah, it would be a cool service. And I think a lot of people really feel safe and open up to their their hairstylists and, Mm -hmm. you know, barbers and, you know, cosmetologists. And it's a really powerful, vulnerable field, Mm -hmm. right? So, yeah, I I loved it. I I wouldn't go back, right? But Mm -hmm. it was wonderful. And then um, as I left that and finished up um, some school, I did, I bartended for a little while and, and waitressed, which is again, right? Like another therapist role. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Different medium. Right. But Um, that was fun too. 
I mean, like, you know, I think any sort of customer service is like, I feel like there's a lot of crisis management, (laughs) you know, in customer service. Like diffusing regulation. (laughs) Like, how do I calm you down so we can be in your thinking brain so we can have a conversation (laughs) about what's going on? Right. Right? Always holding space. Mm Mm-hmm. Who's creating that? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So is is that what led you to being a therapist or, or was there there's something else that drew you to it? Yeah. So all through my um, academics, I, I did hair. Like it really put me through, through all of my college, um, that and like a dabbling in the, in the restaurant industry. Um, but what happened for me is I went into women's studies and I um, started volunteering at this place called Stepping Stones at Families and Youth Incorporated, which is no longer there, um, in Las Cruces, New Mexico, which if you know where that is, it's like a, it's the second biggest city in New Mexico, but it's like tiny. Um, And I worked in a residential girls' home, and a lot of the the, um, adolescents had been taken from their families, were parts of the foster system, just really lived in these really, like, were coming from these really um, awful situations. And my role there was very limited. It was essentially, like, make sure they had food, drive them to school, you know, make sure they get up on time. And, like, that was kind of it. Like, make sure they're all alive. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I saw while I was working there is that, like, None of the people who worked there, and I, I get that it's limited. We all made minimum wage, right? So there's barriers there too to like investing into it. I get that, but no one wanted to like let these girls outside of the house. There were no activities. These girls Ooh, were sitting around. It's terrible. It's it heartbreaking. What are they supposed to do? You're gonna get like behavior stuff up the butt, you know? Like no kidding. That, yeah, that's... it was awful, and you just watch these kiddos like deteriorate, right? Yeah. It's like they come in from a bad situation and now the chaos is gone right? and they're just sitting. Right. And so you're watching this depression manifest. You're watching them like not connect with people. You're watching all of these things happen. And so what I um, started to do was I, I got permission to start um, like kind of an activities program. And it started as a gardening program because they had like a lot of land there and they actually had kind of a garden space. And so like with, with the kiddos, we created like a program where we were going to raise our own funds because there was no funding. And so we got a lot of funding from the community, right. And donations from people, all kinds of people for this garden. And I would come in when I wasn't working and we would facilitate creating this garden. Right. We got like sprinkler systems donated, trees, all kinds of stuff. And really just kind of started cultivating this. And then the other things that started getting cultivated there more when I was like, you know, working were like, okay, can we, how do we orchestrate taking them out on like a hike or a walk Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. like moving around or like going to the movies or like, and so we started to, to create these things. And it was wonderful to see these, these people just you know, have like a glimmer of hope and like they're working towards something, they're seeing things happen and they're creating that change. But the biggest thing, so this is, this is where it kind of transitions into how did I get where I am is I kept running up against 
like barriers. Like, well, what does the therapist say? Well, what does Dr. So-and-so think about that? And I'm like, (laughs) well, fuck y'all. I'm going to go and like, I'm going to go into this field so that I can decide what I'm going to do because you're not doing it right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. This is not how this should look. Like you're hurting these people, keeping them in a cage. And so I essentially was like, okay, what do I do? And so I applied to a master's, two master's programs. And one of the programs called me back and said, yeah, we don't really want you for this master's program. We would really like you for our doctorate. Like you cool. like kind of check all these boxes. And I was like, oh my God, like that's a really big commitment. That's like five <laughs> years. I feel like I get bored of things in like nine months if I'm lucky. Um, the good thing pregnancy do? only lasts that long. Oh my gosh. Right. <laughs> no kidding. Um, not not to not to say the word only. I mean that yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a long time. <laughs> Sorry, I, I got you. Totally, I know. I this kind of a funny marker. Nine months. <laughs> it, but I was like, I really had to check myself, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna do this, and so that's how I ended up where I was or where I am in that pro or. Blah, blah, blah rewind where I was in that program, being in the doctorate program. Um, and I really thought I wanted to work in community mental health, enter in that first experience. We all did. <laughs> we all did. We all thought that that was the way to save the world. That's what we thought. Right. And totally. And I thought I wanted to work with youth. Like I thought that was my, that was what I wanted. And when I went into community mental health, I realized that like, that was actually not fitting my ideal. It was actually, I was running up to the same barriers, mm-hmm. but now it's like, or oh, funding doesn't let us do that. Right. It's always that barrier. Um, and so when I went to that second site that I talked about with not private practice and saw that like, you know, quality services, education, like we're really looking at providing like outstanding services and fitting the needs of the community. Like that's really where I was like, this is home. This is home to me. Like this is where I want to be. And that's how I really got kind of where I wanted to go. And so I think like, it's, you know, not a super like succinct elevator story, but I feel like that's how I ended up here. Honestly, is like those girls. And I can tell you the names of like every girl who came through that door still. I love it. I think it's a great origin story. You know, like superheroes, how they have origin oh, stories. Yeah. That's your origin origin story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you for sharing that. Yeah, um, thank you. Thank you for asking me. Um, so tell us more about yourself, like hobbies, interests, TV shows you're into, music, pets, kids, etc. Okay. Um, let's see. Hmm. So my favorite TV show is Supernatural, which I don't know if you've seen it, but it just ended. And that's been on for a while, hasn't it? It's on for 15 seasons. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and it's definitely my favorite show. And now kind of, I think, you know, when it ended, I will not lie. I heard a spoiler. I will not share the spoiler, but I did not want to watch that last episode. And it wrecked me, wrecked my world. <laughs> I already knew what happened. Knew it was going to wreck my world, wrecked my world anyway. But I really think like, as I got older, because it's been on for 15 years, right? So I was like, I was 20 when it, when it came out. And now when I look back on it, I identify that as like a metaphor for trauma therapy, right? Like the hunters, Mm -hmm. they're hunting things that other people don't see. 
right? Like other people, only certain people know are real and have been super impacted by. And I feel like that's a trauma therapist too. Like people come in with these like horrific things that they feel or know that other people haven't experienced. And with EMDR, we begin that healing process so that it can be something that they experienced and not something that they're experiencing anymore. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that show is like even more powerful now thinking about that metaphor That's cool, than yeah. it was before. It was before it was just like, oh my gosh, Dean Winchester's hot. <laughs> but I've transitioned out of that phase of objectivity in my life. So <laughs> um, let's see. So TV shows. I think my biggest thing, and like, I'm sure the clients that I work with will be like, oh yeah, she talks about this all the time. Like, I love superheroes. Like, I love the idea that um, there are people out there who want to help people. Like, they just, you know, they have these gifts, right? And they want to use those to better society. They want Mm -hmm. to selflessly help other people. And they have the capability to do that. And they also have their own story outside of that. And I think that that to me is just amazing. And I think it's very empowering that each of us can have a little bit of that in us, even though most of us can't fly, but you know, (laughs) I just think that's so, that's so empowering and so fun to think about. Um, Let's see, hobbies. Um, I recently got into horses, which is something that I used to do as a child. And during the pandemic, we have, we were really trying to cultivate, like, what are we going to do? Like, how are we going to stay sane? (laughs) I think we all struggle with that a little bit. And how are we going to stay connected? And how are we going to have a life? And so, you know, I, I used to be involved with horses when I was very young and it seemed something that was like, it was social distanced. It was outside. It was something that could take up, you know, time and be an investment. I actually bought my first horse this last year, which was a oh, huge congrats. deal. Thank you yeah. so much. I imagine it's kind of like buying a car. <laughs> <laughs> With a lot of personality, right? <laughs> yeah, and that was, it literally felt like my inner seven-year-old was finally at peace. Oh. It was like this amazing experience. Um, so my horse's name is Grace. And I always use this phrase in my work, um, you know, have grace with yourself today. Right? And so for me, when we were actually going to name the horse after a female scientist, I don't remember what her name was, but when I saw grace, I was like, that's it. That's, that's mm-hmm. the name like this, this fits. Mm-hmm. And she's been um, just really like a godsend for, for me and um, for being able to take care of myself in, in my work and in the pandemic. Um, and so we actually have started, I have started, um, taking natural lifemanship, which is a trauma focused equine assisted psychotherapy. And so we're hoping to bring that into our practice, maybe not soon, but maybe like in in a year or so when we're Mm -hmm. a little more comfortable, but, um, you'll see this theme with me, but like, I found out that there's legitimately EMDR that can be done on horses. And I was like, holy shit, hold the phone. Like, can I do this? (laughs) Like this, I can marry these two things. Oh, like Like goat yoga. Oh my gosh. Yes, (laughs) totally. 
but I just, yeah. So that's a, that's become like a really big part of, of my life and my family's life. Um, you asked about like, um, kids and, and, you know, you actually met my daughter. I have a five and a half year old daughter. Her name is Olivia. She was named after Olivia Benson from SB. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Go crush. Yes. It. She's talking about superhumans, right? Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I, your seven-year-old self was satisfied with a, um, a horse. Mm -hmm. My seven-year-old self will only ever be satisfied with a dirt bike. <laughs> Do you have the dirt bike yet? No. <laughs> I've always wanted one, but I never did it. And I feel like I'm at a point in my life now where my bones might break if I try and <laughs> do the things that I wanted to do. <laughs> I hear that. Yeah. Oh man. I hear uh, that. Isn't it funny? But you know, what about a motorcycle? Uh, not know, the same. I, you know, what did do it for me for a little while is I'm too skitzy of motorcycles. My grandfather was a surgeon and all my family are medical professionals and, um, you know, I've just heard horror stories my whole life. Um, but I did get a jet ski. I had a jet ski for a few years and that's like a water motorcycle. Um, okay. and that Does was it hurt fun. less when you hit the water. I never, never had a big like fly off. Luckily, um, I used to take it out. I would, I would generally only take it out. Uh, I would take it out on Lake Travis, but like first thing in the morning when the water's like glass um, mm -hmm. and like all the big boats haven't been out all day making it all because um, oh, yeah, Lake Travis can get really choppy. Isn't that where the boats sank during like the yeah. rally? Yes. Because they got a little too choppy and have a little uh -huh. foresight there. Uh huh. Okay. Um, and no anyway. one was hurt. We can think that's funny because no one was hurt. Right. Right. Okay. So uh, switching gears, I'm excited totally. to learn more about EMDR. Oh yeah, that's um, what EMDR. So pretend that I'm a client who is in your virtual office mm -hmm. um, and I've heard of EMDR, but have no idea what it is, except my friend told me it could probably help. What would you say to orient me to this approach and gain informed consent? Okay, so would you like the, like the full explanation? Yeah, like give, give me all the good stuff. I want to know yeah, all the good stuff. Okay. So I typically start by um, giving a little bit of an explanation of what trauma is. And, and I realize that some people don't identify their experiences as trauma. And that's a, that's a big part of trauma work, right? A lot of mm -hmm. people don't want, don't want to think that they have gone through that or don't identify as having gone through that. And so one of the key pieces, I think, to describing EMDR is to understand what that is. So I will often start by saying, you know, there's, there's two types of trauma. As we think of it, there's what's called objective trauma. And that's something that you and I, and most people would agree would be, you know, very life-changing experience, like, um, being in war, being assaulted, being in a horrific car accident, right? Where most people would agree that that's going to have some major impact. And then there's what's called subjective trauma. And those are things that may impact people very differently, right? And oftentimes it's not just one event. It can be many events that don't, that are insidious and are over time. For example, like um, maybe a relationship that we had since childhood 
that isn't healthy. And so we're not pinpointing one experience. It's many experiences, but it's helped shape the way we are and how we view the world. And the thing about objective and subjective trauma is your brain doesn't care. It doesn't make a differentiation like we do, right? It's all stored in your body and your brain the same way. And the trick with trauma is it's stored in a different place in your brain in a different way than the other experiences that you've been through. So I think of it kind of like, if you think of trauma as like a rock, right? It's not going to be digested by your brain. And so it stays in its true form, right? So when we think about those experiences, oftentimes we're tapping into them exactly how they happened, right? We're, we're having very vivid images, right? Very um, distinct thoughts and beliefs, um, very strong emotions, maybe the same emotions that you experienced when you went through that. Bring that up like your chest clenches or your, you know, your jaw tightens or your back starts to hurt, right? Or many other body sensations, right? And so it's very much stored in this um, capsulated way almost, right? Mm -hmm. And I think of it like um, if that's one piece of trauma, And then we have many, it's like now we're creating this rock formation, right? And oftentimes what happens is, is if one of those pieces gets triggered, it lights up all of the networks of trauma, right? And so that's why when we get triggered, we often have a larger reaction than what just happened because we are reacting to all of the trauma versus what just happened or that one piece of trauma that it's connected to, right? So all of that being said, what we think happens in REM sleep is that the events of the day are essentially processed or digested and integrated with the rest of the information in our brain. So like if, and when that happens, you can think of things like, um, if you've ever gotten in maybe like an argument or maybe let scratch that. If you maybe got into something that If you had like something that you wanted to say to someone and you were maybe like very upset, right? And you decided, I'm going to wait, I'm going to sleep on it, right? And you wake up in the morning and you're like, whew, I didn't say anything. Feel a lot better today, right? Mm -hmm. Have you ever had that kind of experience? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What they believe happens is the events of your day are integrating into the other information in your brain, Mm -hmm. right? Okay. So then when you think back on these kind of, integrated pieces of information and experiences, you can remember them, but you're not viscerally feeling them, right? Like you could probably tell me what happened yesterday, but as long as nothing bad happened, right? Like, right, nothing (laughs) traumatic, we're assuming. You might be able to recount those events and it feels kind of mundane. It's like, okay, like I got up, I walked my dog, I had, um, you know, some breakfast and like, you know, I had a long day at work and I came home and went to bed, like, right. But what happens is with those trauma memories and those experiences is they're not integrating with that information, right? They're stored in their original form. And so the goal of EMDR is to allow those trauma experiences to integrate with the rest of the information in your brain. So they call that adaptive information processing, right? we're kind of integrating those two things. Um, 
And how they do that is through bilateral stimulation or BLS. We love our alphabet soup. Um, and that's what happens in REM sleep, right? Rapid eye movement, more alphabet soup. Mm -hmm. um, and your eyes are essentially going right, left, right, left across the midline of your brain, right? And they believe that that's the mechanism that creates this processing, right? And so that's the same mechanism we use in EMDR to integrate that information. And we do it in many different ways. So, you know, eye movements happen in REM sleep and we can use eye movements with EMDR. We can use um, tapping like the butterfly hug. A lot of people are familiar with that or tapping on your legs. Um, we also can do tones that go back and forth. Um, those are the standard forms of bilateral stimulation that are used. Um, but there are also other forms of bilateral stimulation. Like if you think about just moving in daily life, like walking, you're moving, right? Right, left, right, left. You're creating that bilateral stimulation, running, um, any kind of, you know, exercise typically. And there's all kinds of things we can do. Like when we work with kids, like sprinting, like, okay, we can do the same process and you can do sprints, right? I know there's um, some people use like pool noodles, like tapping back and forth with kiddos. Um, I don't typically treat a lot of children. So that's not going to give a bunch of examples and kind of botch the great work that EMDR specialists with kids are doing. Um, and so how we access these memories is in a very specific protocol way, right? So that idea is that we're accessing the specific pieces that we're wanting to look for. The other piece that I like people to know, and maybe not all in one go, right? Because this is a lot of information oftentimes to, to digest, is that EMGR works with the past, the present, and the future, because we believe the past informs the present, right? So the trauma or the experiences of the past are informing whatever someone is coming in for today, right? Okay, I'm hypervigilant, I have high anxiety, whatever those kind of presenting concerns look like, right? So then we're gonna work with that presenting concern, whatever's left when we're done with the past. And then we're also working with how do they want to be feeling, acting and behaving in the future. Mm -hmm. right. So what, what is the, the process? You know, I think um, from the brief research I have done, it sounds like there's like different phases or like, mm -hmm. like a certain, like a specific protocol. Um, can you give us just like a, quick and dirty um, kind of idea of what that looks like? Yeah, so EMDR is an eight-phase eight protocol, right? Um, and so all of the, oftentimes, I will say, oftentimes people think of EMDR as like just the bilateral stimulation, right? And so oftentimes we'll hear that like, oh, I did EMDR. Well, it's, it's an entire therapy, right, with, with those eight phases. So the first phase is you know, history taking and treatment planning. And so that might be what we think of as like more of like the intake, understanding like what this person's been through, what their life looks like, um, what their social connections look like, right? And so really kind of understanding like what's going on, like what this person has been through, what their life looks like now, what supports and resources they have, right? And then creating a treatment plan. And that treatment plan is created in a really specific way um, with that past, present, future in mind, right? So we want to identify the things that we want to work on. Um, and then the second phase is what's called preparation. And preparation is really um, making sure that someone is in a space where 
they can reprocess, right? Like the bilateral stimulation is going to be appropriate for them, right? Um, and so sometimes what happens is this phase may take one session, this phase may take a year, depending on the, on the client, right? And so some people need a lot of coping skills. Some people um, don't have a lot of internal resources to make it safe to really look at that trauma. And so building that up, um, all different kinds of things can happen in this phase. Um, and then we also set up when, when the client is ready, we'll set up like that bilateral stimulation. And we do typically like a positive resource. A lot of therapists use like the, the calm, safe place. There's variations on that name. And that's essentially developing a tool and pairing it with the bilateral stimulation. And that happens for a couple of reasons. One, it allows us to give the client a resource to self-soothe, emotionally regulate outside of session and potentially to use inside of session. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but also so that they can feel what the bilateral stimulation feels like with something, you can see how their brain reacts and how, how it moves um, with something positive before we open up, you know, all of that negative in an, in an intentional and, and purposeful way, right? So that preparation phase is very important. Um, and then we move into what is typically and stereotypically thought of as like EMDR. We move into um, the assessment phase where we're looking specifically at that the experience that we're going to reprocess, we assess that there's a protocol way to do that. So we're accessing that memory and experience in a specific way. And then stage four or phase four is desensitization, which is where you start, you know, doing the bilateral stimulation with that experience. Right. And this is oftentimes what's thought of, sorry, this is the phase that's often thought of as like EMDR specifically. Mm -hmm. And then the next phase is um, the positive installation right? Like oftentimes we have negative um, belief systems associated with experiences that we've had. And so, you know, installing and cultivating things that are more positive and adaptive is part of that process. And then we have the body scan, which is phase six. And then phase seven is um, closure. And so that's like closure of the session. Um, and that can happen, you know, depending on where, where you end the session. Right. And then phase eight is reevaluation. So reevaluating the work that you have done through, and you do this throughout the process. And oftentimes people think of EMDR as like a linear thing, right? So we're going to do, we're going to do our history, we're going to do our preparation. We're going to do our, you know, the work on the memory, and then we're going to just keep working on memories. Well, it's more fluid than that, right? Because you may come up to some, come into something where someone doesn't have the tools to, navigate whatever situation's happening, or maybe you're working on a memory and you realize, oh, information needs to happen here because we literally don't have the information to make this adaptive, right? It's just maybe a lack of knowledge, no one's fault, right? Then we're moving back into preparation. Right? And so it is a very fluid process. And I think that that's really important because a lot of times people will come to EMDR therapy and they're not doing bilateral stimulation. So they feel like they're not doing EMDR and that's not necessarily what's happening. Right. Mm -hmm. And hopefully their therapist is explaining that to them and like, you know, being very intentional about, you know, explaining where they are in the process, which can be very helpful. Cool. Did that Love help? It. Did that answer that question? Yeah, no, it totally <laughs> answered that question. Um, so thinking about everything you just described, in what populations or issues might EMDR not be an appropriate approach? 
So for example, it can be really difficult for trans and non-binary folks to engage in body scans in a way that may be productive. Um, so what are your thoughts on this and what would your approach be to a trans client who is unable to engage in body scans as part of the process? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So the, there's two questions there, right? So the first question mm -hmm. is, who is it inappropriate for? And I'm right. like, my reductionistic explanation of this answer to this is going to be, it's appropriate for everybody, right? <laughs> it's just a matter of where they, like what you're going to do with it, right? Maybe right. someone will be in preparation for a long time. Like we see that mm -hmm. a lot with clients who are highly dissociative, right? There's a lot of, lot of stuff that needs to happen before they can engage in that bilateral stimulation um, in an effective way. Right. And so you might be in that preparation phase longer. Um, and then I think that that's a really important question about that body scan. And um, I would also extend that it's not just trans folks, though yeah. I can with the body scan, but I work a lot with like food and weight and, and body mm -hmm. issues specifically. Yeah. And so that is a major consideration in with that, too. And I think part of this is, is about being intentional right and knowing your clients and knowing what's going to be okay with them right and so some of the things that might happen with someone um who maybe is is trans um would be and this is not my specialty area so i'm really being intentional to use my language appropriately so please correct me if i'm wrong i would like to be corrected if i if i use like yeah. verbiage inappropriately um so i my understanding and i've heard of this talked about and i don't necessarily know that i have worked with a transplant specifically but there are oftentimes certain areas of the body that are very triggering Right. And so what you might do is you might guide the body scan more intentionally instead of being like, you know, start with your head, working all the way down to your toes. You might say something like, OK, so if we check in with your back. Right. And guiding, guiding versus allowing like free association with that right. and avoiding those areas that, you know, are going to bring up things that maybe you're not working on right now. Mm -hmm. Right. So as to not also bring up work that um, maybe you're also gonna do later on down the road because you wanna be able to stay focused on also what you're working on. And if we open, open a lot of trauma at one time in a body scan, the body car typically carries the most amount of trauma, right? And so that could really be a very painful experience if we, if we do that in an unintentional way. And I really believe that, that one of the biggest tenets of EMDR is collaboration. And so if, if I was working with a trans client, right. And I knew that that was something that felt, you know, possibly unsafe, or maybe I know it's explicitly unsafe. I'm going to have a conversation before I'm ever like, Hey, let's go to phase six. Right. And I'd probably check in before we even do that. Like, you know, the next stage is the body scan. Like, do you, do you, how are you feeling about that? Like, is that something that you feel like we could check in with certain parts? Are there parts that feel like they, they would be off limits? Right. And I'm not. Yeah, Cause I imagine, I mean, that's different for everybody. Some people mm -hmm. uh, may experience gender dysphoria about their hands, for example. I mean, totally. you know, um, so making an assumption that it's just certain areas of the body, I think is 
short-sighted. So I like what you're saying by like, you know, going over that, like what feels mm-hmm. safe, what doesn't, mm-hmm. um, and, and really ultimately getting consent to proceed with that. Absolutely. Um, got it. Yeah, yeah, and I would then love another, to hear your thoughts on that too, right? Like, what, what do you, you like, you know, what do you feel like would be an appropriate way to address that, that body scan? Well, right? I mean, I, I think that it's all about communication. I think that, you know, if, if I were to do EMDR, I would expect that it would be a conversation, for example. Like, you know, I, I, I mean, as you know, this, this show is largely based on the idea of um, consent, you know, with the mm-hmm. whole next question um, aspect of things. So for me, consent is very important um, when it comes to that. Because, uh, you know, some people, it may be a straight up no. Yeah. You know, um, and I think that proceeding without taking that into consideration could could do a lot of harm. Um, I agree completely. So I think just a conversation is the best way to approach it. I mean, there's a lot of... Um, like deferring opinions in the trans community, I, I do follow this about EMDR. Uh, there's a lot of conversation about it. Some people say it's a straight up no, never do it. Um, some people say, um, you know, adapt it. Like maybe, maybe somebody just focuses on their toes, you know, um, yeah. you know, they don't have to focus on anything else, you know. So that's, um, you know, I, I, I feel like saying no is all or nothing mm-hmm. um, and then like doesn't give an individual an opportunity to say like, you know what, like I want to try it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I like to know my options and I like for people to ask me before they do things, <laughs> oh, oh <my laughs> you know, yes. <laughs> so Absolutely. Um, that's, that's, that's my thoughts on it. And I feel like there EMDR is a protocoled approach. And I think it's really important. I'm going to say this because I'm an EMDR consultant. It's very important for people to understand the protocol and, and stick to the protocol, especially as they're learning. And there is a lot of creativity that can go into it if you understand how it all works, right? Principles, yeah. Yeah. And so I think that that body scan is something that you know, this has to be taken into consideration because if we say, well, we can't move on if we don't do that body scan, like we're literally excluding like groups of people who can't do that. Mm -hmm. Right. And there is a lot of benefit that can come say they, you know, they have trauma stored in their body. Right. Which I'm going to say, if we're having a hard time doing a body scan, there's some sort of trauma in the body. Right. Well, I mean, what about issues like chronic pain though? Oh, totally. Um, well, we work with chronic pain with EMDR a lot. Do a lot of that ooh. chronic pain, and the body scan can be a very hard part of that. Mm-hmm. Right, but then again, it's all about consent, mm-hmm. right? Especially with that, and like knowing the limits. Like one of the things that's really important in EMDR, we do this in preparation phase, is like a stop sign, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, I always say, it's really easy for me to like sit over here and like ask you to continue i'm gonna be the most empathetic person in the entire world very attuned and i'm never gonna feel your feeling literally Mm -hmm. right and so partnering with that person it's not like you are doing this and we're walking through this protocol approach it's like man this is your journey and i'm just helping facilitate it right Right. so i have to have that consent all the time 
It's powerful. It's a really important question. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting. And, and I would love to see, I don't know, like some research or something on it. Um, but what, you know, you mentioned that you do EM, EMDR. Is it for chronic pain or is it um, just uh, working with people who have chronic pain? Like, can EMDR help with chronic pain, for yes. example? Yes. And if you want to know more about the chronic pain, Mark Grant is the person who's done like all of the, or I shouldn't say all. He is the, the person that's most well known, I, I believe, in, in pain. Um, cool. with EMDR. Cool. So um, I know you said EMDR, I mean, EMDR can help everyone, um, but what sorts of presenting issues are, do you commonly see? And maybe like what's something that is less common, but EMDR can help with? Does that make sense? Like, yeah, I think, I think that's a great question. So I think like for me personally, like what I commonly see, I work with a lot of PTSD. Um, and I work, let's see, you see a lot of anxiety, right? Um, depression, right? I work with a lot of eating disorders and disordered eating and, and food. I, I call it food, weight, and body concerns. I feel like eating disorders is very like exclusionary. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that those, that's been a very helpful piece of our work. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, other presenting concerns. Cause I feel like when I work with trauma, a lot of it, I see in a lens of that trauma, which kind of, you know, it's right. more symptom based mm -hmm. and I don't do a lot of um, specific diagnosing unless I have to, because I think it's, it can be positive and negative. I know there's a big debate about that. Um, and so I usually just discuss that with my clients, what's important to them. But let's see. What about OCD? OCD, great treatment. I've, I've worked a lot with trick, trichotillomania mm -hmm, with this, mm -hmm. um, escoriation. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of, of research on OCD and, the, and this. Um, and it's, you know, there are some specific protocols for that. Right? A lot of panic disorders. Mm -hmm. Phobias are another big one that's worked with with EMDR quite a lot of interpersonal relationship issues, which I know is kind of an ominous, like that's not a diagnosis, but you know, all different kinds of things. It is, it that. is. It is, it is, it is, But that's a big one that I see, or like emotional regulation, like however yeah, you want to yeah. put that into a diagnosis, but like that's, that's a huge one um, that comes up a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Attachment issues, right? Again, back to the relational piece, right? All, we know that a lot of that comes from early childhood trauma. Um, psychosis is something. Okay, so this is the one that probably you wouldn't commonly Ooh, think of. Okay. But psychosis is treated, and it's a very specialty area. Um, there is information. Do use it. I have, um, I have used it with um, schizoaffective and psychotic episodes before. I would not um, promote myself as that as like a specialty area of mine, mm -hmm. because that's also like very, um, acute things that are going on. Yeah. Um, but I have done that. It's going to be very effective in helping with stabilization and, um, maintenance. Right? Um, a lot of dissociation, like DID. Yeah. Right. That's a, that's a big integration one really is what the key is there. Yeah. And that's a really specialty area in, in EMDR as well. Huh, I'm trying to think of any anything else that's popping up 
on the top of my head. Fear, fear is a big one too, right? Kind of phobias, but like anticipatory things or grief, grief and loss. Uh-huh. Wow. So really everything. Really everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is there one thing that it has like been shown that there's like a no-no, like don't do EMDR for this? I'm sure I'm going to say no. And then someone's going to be like, Hey, Dr. Karen's like, (laughs) I'm going to say no, but I'm also going to say that that's a reductionistic answer. And oftentimes there's a lot of like with the, with the populations where maybe it's a no, no, there might be additional work. There are certain things like seizures. Like if people have seizures, um, yeah. Right. So I was thinking more diagnostically, but um, like seizures can be a thing. Um, And so you're going to want to collaborate with someone's doctor on that. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm going to say, I don't know if the um, tones or the, you know, the more tactile approaches to bilateral stimulation might affect that differently. I don't have a lot of experience with that. Um, I have heard, you know, people, in like pregnancy, sometimes that has historically been like a consult the doctor. And I, that is not my specialty area. Perinatal and, um, you know, postpartum is a very special specialized area. But my understanding is that part of that concern is more like how distressed is the, is the mother going to become? Right. Yeah. Um, and I have worked with women who are pregnant and I have not at this point had a doctor say no, but I always refer back to that medical professional because I don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Very, very interesting. So everyone can do (laughs) (laughs) ECR. Had to throw that out there. (laughs) For everybody. Um, So what is required for one to earn a certification in EMDR? Yeah. So, um, there's kind of different levels of of training. So there's like EMDR basic training and the basic training is typically like two weekends, um, two very full weekends. Um, I think it's, I think it's 50 hours. I'm open to being corrected on that exact number, but it's typically is two, three day weekends. Um, and then you do 10 hours of consultation during that time period. Mm -hmm. And then you are basic trained. Um, and then to pursue certification, someone has to be, um, a fully licensed clinician. Um, they have to do 20 hours of consultation. 10 of that has to be individual and 10 of it can be group. Um, and they have to demonstrate a proficiency in the standard protocol, which is, you know, really important. Um, and then they have to do a little bit of ongoing education. I think it's like 14 CEUs. Um, so they're 12 or 14 and then they have to provide like letters of recommendation from like their, um, consultant, their EMDR consultant, and like other members of the therapeutic community. Um, and I think that's it. And that's, I mean, that's a lot. Like, yeah, right? that's a lot. that is a lot. I shouldn't say that's it. So it takes <laughs> a long time to do that. Right. Oh, and they have to see a certain number of clients. I, um, there's a requirement of like number of clients and number of sessions that have to be, be done for that. And then when you become a consultant, you have to, 
um, it's a very similar process, but you're working with a consultant on your consulting, right? Mm -hmm. So it's more, it's more focused on like providing consultation effectively and demonstrating like your knowledge of like how it works in that more hands-on way with, mm-hmm. with other people. Um, and you need, I think it's 20 hours for that as well, but then you have to have, I think it's twice as many clients and twice as many hours independent of your certification. So it's on top of your certification. Um, okay. and then additional, um, continuing education hours. Right. And then again, with the, um, recommendations, the letters of recommendation, mm-hmm. And that's, that can be sometimes be a lot because you have to be doing that consulting. So there's also like building that, you know, consultation part of your practice or working with your consultant to do like group consulting. I know I did a couple of my hours, like being kind of being the consultant in, in a group that my consultant is running. And so like, I'm providing answers, but also she's like there for backup right. To also answer questions. Yeah. Um, and that was a really cool experience. That is cool. Um, and I, yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. And there's a lot of like specialty trainings on top of like, you know, being certified or a consultant. Um, and then the next step is like a trainer, which they've actually suspended that taking on any new training applica- trainer applications during the pandemic, wow. because they're kind of adjusting, like moving to um, video training where they had never allowed that before. Right? It had yeah. all been in person. Um, and so I think they're, you know, they're, they're figuring out how they're going to do that, but that's the next step. But then there's also a lot of trainings and specialty stuff. Like, um, I know one that's big is like, um, groups, like doing EMDR mm-hmm. groups, trauma or like ongoing trauma. Like when people are living in trauma, right. And how do we, um, give someone resources to be able to be, you know, um, resilient and persevere as the trauma is continuing, Right. Um, and like lots of, lots of specialty stuff. Um, like we just talked about, like all those areas, right. OCD. Focus, yeah. Um, I can imagine there's a specialist for each one. Oh, I'm sure. Absolutely. <laughs> we can't be, we can't be specialists in everything. Right. I know it's a shame. <laughs> um, so what, what have you found are some common misconceptions people have about EMDR? Am I awake when it happens? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. Is it hypnosis? Um, another misconception is that it's just the eye movements, right? Like you're going to walk in and we're going to quote, do EMDR, mm-hmm. right? It's like, why are we not doing EMDR? That's, that's a big one. Um, or like if, if we're not doing the eye, if we're not doing bilateral stimulation, we're not doing work. Right. That's a misconception. Uh, oh, <laughs> This is a big one. And I don't know where this came from, but I would like to have a conversation with the person who put this out there. EMDR takes eight sessions. Oh gosh. I get that all the time. You can Google it and it says that. And I'm like, what asshat put this into the world? (laughs) And the only thing I can think of is that someone at some point said the average time to work on a, like a specific experience is eight which I don't even, I don't even believe that's true, but that's the only thing I can conceptualize that might be where that came from. But I hear that a lot, like way more often than I'd like. Interesting. Oh, I'm trying to wow. think what else. Um, 
I think another misconception is like the memory will go away mm. or um, they'll forget it. Right. I'm trying to think of any other ones that I've heard because there are a lot of them. Yeah, I can um, imagine. I mean, there's a lot of them about therapy, period. <laughs> oh, for, for sure. Have yeah. you heard any? Like, have you heard any things that like we mm -hmm. haven't talked about that sound like wonderfully outrageous? I'm trying to think <laughs> of something and I, I can't think of anything. You know, like I, I had said earlier, it's just kind of always been this nebulous concept to me, but mm -hmm. it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I can't think of anything. Um, well, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? Okay, so I, to be honest, I don't think I have any experience working with transgender folks, um, to my knowledge, right? Well, to um, your knowledge, that's right. <laughs> to my knowledge. Um, and... Also, um, being undocumented, I don't know that I have necessarily worked with that population either. I will say when I worked at Western Washington University, um, they are, uh, there's a specific word for this, please help me, a safe haven, is that what it's called? Okay. Where they don't, they don't, they specifically do not report if they know things yeah. about documentation status. So that was a big piece of our work there. And we were trained mm -hmm. very extensively on that as, as our school being a safe space. Um, but to my knowledge, I did not work with anyone who was undocumented while I was there mm -hmm. or to my, to my knowledge, anyone that I, that I have worked with. Um, I mean, it sounds like you've worked with uh, severe and chronic mental illness. You know, that's, that's definitely a vulnerable population. Definitely a vulnerable population. Um, as and and as far as BIPOC, I I kind of hemmed and hawed about whether or not to share this story, but I, I think it's kind of important to be just kind of like vulnerable and honest. But I I would have I had a very specific client who brought this. They were going through a lot of um, I shouldn't say they were going through, but they have experienced and continue to experience a lot of discrimination, racism, um, a lot of micro and macroaggressions, um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, race was a, is, was a really big part of our work together. And, um, this person had asked me if I had ever worked with someone who was not white. And I responded that I had not. And I sat with that for a long time. And I realized my own um, short-sightedness and my own un, like just ignorance and white privilege, right? That that wasn't true. And I had actually worked with a lot of people who were not white. And that moment was so incredibly powerful for me. Um, and I went and did a lot of work on myself mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. that. And I do work with a lot of people who are BIPOC. And that is something that I bring into the room, right? That I am a privileged white woman, right? And, you know, I want to know what their 
like just off the bat, like this is some, this is a thing, right? Like, right. can't like, how do you feel about taking this journey with me? And not about me. It's not about me. It's about how they are experiencing that. And that moment was just so powerful for me that I could even have that belief that I hadn't, that it just, it really just shook me. And this, this was also, I will say like, this is well, this happened well before this year. Um, and so going through this last year too, um, having checked a lot of that and then having that rechecked and, you know, really digging into that with myself and my own experience has been continually powerful. And my hope is that not that anyone's like, Oh, I'm poor fucking white lady. And she doesn't <laughs> know that she works with BIPOC people, but that I can be better for the people that I serve because their journey is what matters. And if I'm not bringing that into the room, like I am not allowing them to, you know, really search their whole self. And that's mm. my responsibility as a clinician to bring those things up. Even if they Absolutely. say, even if someone says that's not an issue or that's not a thing, right? I can't expect someone else to bring anything up in therapy, right? Like we have the shovel oftentimes. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I got a really big reality check there. I mean, that that work to me is a lifetime process. Yeah. You know? Oh, yes. Um, and, and we all, we all, I mean, as therapists, it's imperative that we do it. Absolutely. And I will say, like, um, it was not this person's job to, to teach me anything. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and we did not. And I went and did a lot of, of that work. Of beginning that work right so ongoing mm -hmm. um but my intention is to never have that be my my short-sightedness again yeah cool okay um so earlier you kind of gave us the the spiel about emdr and what it is really mm -hmm. um so in a in an initial session with a client I assume that you would kind of discuss some of the logistics of EMDR and um, what else, what, what does it look like? Well, it looks like someone's sitting on a couch <laughs> and I'm sitting in my chair and um, is that what you mean? Like, li like yeah, literally like, what like, does it look like? Yeah, well, like what, like a lot of people have a lot of anxiety about their initial appointments, right? So I guess okay, I my I my goal is to demystify what that would look like with you. Um, that way, when somebody comes in, they'd already have an idea of what to expect. Oh, okay. I see what you mean. I was kind of trying to be funny with the, like, they're sitting on the couch. <laughs> but literally, I think, okay, so EMDR, you know, people don't know what to expect. We just talked a little bit about those myths, right? Yeah. Um, but it looks very similar to a regular therapy session, right? Like, um, I mean, I'll show you my office. It doesn't look any different than anybody else's office. I have a couch, I have, you know, my therapy chair, um, and, the wood paneling. and a lot of wood paneling over there, right? <laughs> Lots of it. windows in this office. Um, and you know, typically the client will sit on the couch and I'll sit in my chair and I have a little machine that I use and the machine has, um, these little 1980s headphones that I'm actually wearing right now, <laughs> right on them <laughs> for the tones. And we have like these little, um, I call them tappers, 
other people call them buzzers or pulsers. And they're just like little like rectangles essentially that you would hold in the palms of your hands and they vibrate just a little, like if you can imagine like feeling a cat purring, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's what they would feel like, or a hummingbird if you're not a cat person, um, <laughs> right? In your hand, like just like that was like light vibration, right? Um, and we're only gonna use that when we're doing like certain parts, certain phases, right? Like when we're doing mm -hmm. that bilateral stimulation, and so I'm assuming like the different part is when we are doing that bilateral stimulation. And so a client may, you know, choose to close their eyes. They may leave them open. We go through a lot of that and what feels safe and comfortable to the client during these, during these sessions. Um, and, you know, they're going to be having this experience and we're going to be, you know, starting and stopping the machine and checking in on what they're experiencing and then continuing with that, that process. Um, but I think it doesn't necessarily really like look different mm -hmm. than any other kind of therapy, right? We're going to make sure that we have that rapport built. And like when they come in for the intake, we're just going to be talking, right? Um, I know in my, my intake sessions, I typically talk to people about EMDR before they ever come into the office and answer whatever okay. kind of questions they have about EMDR specifically, because I don't take clients that aren't interested in EMDR. So I want to make sure that everyone feels at least like somewhat comfortable coming yeah. in about the process. And I think that's a big one. Like a lot of people, I said, like, you know, being asleep or being hypnotized or something like that, that is a big thing. Like when we're talking about like what it looks like, a lot of people are like, am I going to be awake? Like, are I going to lay on this couch? And like, what's going to happen to me? And it's like, no, you're going to be sitting up or laying. If you want to lay down, you can, you know, my couch is big enough. Right. There's, there's a reason. Um, right. And so it, it looks a lot like that. And there's a lot of safety in the relationship before we're ever going into the trauma piece. Right. A lot of consent. I think that's really an important way to put it. Cool. Okay. How would you say your clients would describe or experience you? <laughs> um, I think that they would say that I am maybe empathetic and funny, but also like have a pretty serious side too. Like I, mm -hmm. and the serious side, I think that they would say is like, I'm really invested in them getting where they want to go. And so I, I tend to like refocus. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I definitely think that like humor is such an important part of therapy as appropriate, right? There are inappropriate times for humor too. But I think that that's a big part of it with, with me and working with me as well, right? I'm a little serious, yeah. I'm a little sassy. I like to swear a lot, not going to lie. It's a, it's a true thing. Um, I bet you'll have people contact you just on that basis. <laughs> yeah, I say fuck a lot and no one will believe me, but I do not swear at home. Period. Yeah. Like it just turns off. It kind of just turns <laughs> off, but I have made an intentional decision that like, I didn't want my daughter to necessarily have like an inherent swearing <laughs> issue. And so if I said fuck around my daughter, she'd be like, what does that mean? I mean, she wouldn't know. Right. It'd be right, so confusing. Right. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> so probably, yeah, right. <laughs> and I would say that most of my clients would identify that I'm also like, I have a plan, right? So like we have mm -hmm. an intention coming into the sessions, mm -hmm. which I think with trauma is really important, right? Yes. Predictability, consistency is really important. And so like, I have an idea, we set an idea before we even come into the next session of what to expect. Even if, you know, therapy's improv sometimes, things come up, but they know what like the intention is, right? Like if we're gonna mm -hmm. work on a big piece of work, like I don't want them to come in and be like, okay, now we're gonna work on that like worst thing you've ever been through. And they're like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> like that is yeah. really terrifying or can be. Yeah, 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 no, I totally, totally understand that. <laughs> um, are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? This is really interesting because I just saw something about this on Facebook about people crying with their clients. And I was, was discussing this with another clinician and, you know, I feel like everyone has a different answer to this. And I was also kind of surprised that everyone had kind of a different answer to this, but I will laugh with my clients. Absolutely. Laughter is so important. Um, I typically do not cry with my clients and I have kind of a specific reason for this. So I have worked with, I, work with trauma. I work with a lot of people who have gone through like awful things mm -hmm. that, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even discuss specifically with others because I wouldn't, you know, want to even share that with, with people to, to also carry with us. Um, and I have heard in my work from clients say that they have gone to therapists and they have cried when they have told their stories of trauma. And then the clinicians, and sometimes I've even heard that those clinicians have asked them not to share details anymore. Right. I, I know, I know, what? I know. And some of the things that I've heard, you know, are objectively terrible. They're awful. They're, you know, no human should have to experience those things. And I feel like I can be incredibly empathetic and hold that space. And I do not need to cry. Mm -hmm. Um, I also feel like if I am upset about it or what, what not have my own reaction, like I get to have that and it's kind of in my time. Right. right. Um, I will say I did tear up one time with someone that I was just so proud that they had like done what they had done. That's did the only time that I like tear up or quote unquote cry. Oh, like man. when I feel so proud when somebody oh. like finally gets it, you know, like, yeah, I had someone um, do something. I'm, I'm not going to share what it was, but it was just like so powerful to them. Mm -hmm. And it was so powerful that they had gotten to that space and we worked together for a really long time. And like, I did well, I don't know that tears fell, but I feel like that for me, it feels authentic and appropriate. Yeah. And like, I'm not holding something for them. Right. Right. But I do feel like with trauma and, and everyone's allowed to have a different opinion. I'm not saying this is the right opinion, right. but I think with trauma, oftentimes there is this belief system for many of my clients that like, um, other people, like it's too much. Yeah. And I never that. want anyone yeah. to think that it's too much because it's not, it's not too much. And I want them to share that with me, whatever they need to share. Mm -hmm. Right. All the details, some of the details, none of the details, and calling it the purple situation, right? Whatever, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm there for that, but it's not about my reaction to their right. trauma. It's about, yeah. So I feel like I have 
a little bit, maybe a different opinion about that, but maybe it's also like the kind of people I work with. I don't know. I've gotten all sorts of responses to that question. Um, You know, me personally as a therapist, I do not cry in session every once in a while. Like, like I said, if I'm proud of somebody or if there is like Mm -hmm. maybe a particularly touching moment, Mm -hmm. like I might have tears well up, but if somebody's telling me their trauma, I'm not going to sit there and cry. Yeah. And, and I, because then yeah. that becomes about me, you know, and totally. that's, not, that's not what it's about. And I don't need my client, like, uh, soothing me, you know, like, that's not, <laughs> not, not the way it works. Absolutely. Um, so this kind of leads into the next question. Um, how do you define holding space for someone? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. I don't necessarily know that I've ever been asked that before, but I think for me, it's creating a safe space and creating a space that is for them. It's not a space that is the same space for everyone. Right. Um, And also uh, I think coming back to that trauma informed piece, just like creating a space that is consistent and predictable. Like I know, um, I have only ever had one client ask me this, but I always wear black, always Mm. like all all black. And part of that is in my intention to hold space is that Mm. I am not taking up a bunch of space in the room. I'm a human Mm. and I'm in the room. And part of that relationship is really important, but I also don't want to have a lot of focus on me. I also used to be a cosmetologist and where I was trained, we were all black. So it was kind of a habit already that kind of maintained a little bit, yeah, yeah. but I do that very intentionally. And I think that for me, it's predictable. Mm-hmm. People always know kind of like what they're going to get. Um, and I think that's a big part of it is like this intentionality of, you know, being attuned to your client and what that looks like. And I think part of holding space is also collaborative, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I've had clients who with EMDR say things like, you know, I'm going to close my eyes, but I don't want to feel like you're staring at me. I, I don't know that I would have thought about that. Right. Because like in Mm -hmm. therapy, we usually sit across from each other. And so we, we decided what we have decided what that looks like with or I have worked with my client to decide what that looks like for them, right? And their space may look different than someone else's space. Gotcha. Right? Uh-huh. So I, th- I think that is how I hold space. I mean, I think that's such an interesting question. I've, I've never thought about, you know, the clothes that I'm wearing. You know, one thing that I've never done or never liked is having any sort of like coffee table or furniture yeah, between me better. and the client. Um, because, you know, they teach you in school that that place is like a literal, like a block between you, you know, Absolutely. Um, but I'd never thought about clothing. That's, that's a really interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't feel a, that way for, about like other people. I think, you know, it's not something that I'm like, oh, you, your clothes are fun. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you stand out too much in your therapy room, I think it's also something that just like, it fits for me and it works. You should see the, the uh, track suit I just bought. <laughs> oh my gosh. What, what color is, is it? it? It's 
gold and white with tigers all over it. Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> phenomenal. That is fantastic. I will say I have some amazingly fabulous shoes that go with my black outfits though so you know there's still personality yeah. there for sure <laughs> most definitely um, I, i'm curious about uh, the answer to your to the next question um because it sounds like you've had a lot of really great like supervisors and um you know uh, mentors um so what would you say is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor Okay, so I think there's three pieces of advice. The first one um, was from Dr. Baird. And he, I don't know if it was like a specific piece of advice, like he said this verbatim, but this is something he definitely taught was, you know, be yourself because mm -hmm. you will not do effective therapy if you are not you. Mm -hmm. And if that means that like, you laugh in therapy or you drop an F-bomb or, you know, you wear all black, like that's you and you're showing up authentically. And if we don't show up authentically in relationships, we can't do good therapy, right? Oh, I mean, that's the whole reason why I transitioned. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I was a therapist for a few years before I transitioned. And, um, you know, I realized that if I expect my clients to be open and authentic and honest with me, mm -hmm. then I, I need to be too, you know. Um, I needed to be as authentic as possible, and, and that's what led to my transition. Um, yeah, that is wonderful. And do you feel more yourself now? Oh, yeah. I, I don't even know how I ever lived before. <laughs> oh. And so now you're living. Oh, yeah. No, Your now life. it's great. It's great. And I mean, even though testosterone has caused some um, male pattern baldness, you know what? I'll take it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll just, I'm doing the whole Bruce Willis thing right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's phenomenal. But it yeah. does, it changes your, I mean, I, you know, I have not gone through a transition, right? And I have the privilege of, you know, being cisgendered. Um, and I can imagine that like living authentically in your whole body is just an amazing experience. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, it's the wildest thing I've ever done. Um, I'm glad I did it. And you know, it's the sort of thing, it, it changes the entire way you move through the world. Um, which is very interesting and a whole presentation I could do. <laughs> That's so um, powerful to even hear that. And, you know, I just, I appreciate you even sharing that with me. Right. Yeah. You're very open, but you know, I, I think that that, you know, it's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, in, in the past as a therapist, that uh, wouldn't have been something that was talked about, you know? Yes. And is that um, something that you bring into your work? With oh, absolutely. I, 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 um, I mean, not only do I have a knowledge of what being trans is like, what the processes are and all the nuances of it. Um, you know, I, I'll give, uh, you know, there, we talk about therapeutic self-disclosure, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I might disclose something, for my transition doesn't mean that that person 
is going to experience that. Like everybody's transition is different, but uh, sometimes it helps give people the language they need to be able to explore what it is for them. Um, because that, that was my problem is I didn't have the language. Um, and that, you know, I had always had the feeling, but I never had the words to put to the feeling. Um, so as soon as I developed that, you know, I just, I, it was done. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so, you know, if, if, uh, my experiences can help somebody else in some way, shape or form, whether it's in relating, providing information or exploration, then I'm happy to do it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And that's such so, a yeah. powerful part of our work too, is like, you know, our own experiences, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Not all yeah. of them are appropriate for every client, but <laughs> <No>. you know, <laughs> right. It, it can be so powerful. And it comes back to that being the human, being human in the room. Right. 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 And that's in that relationship. Yeah. Just so foundational. Yeah. I mean, I could go on all day about this stuff. And in fact, I'll be going on for two that's hours right. later this afternoon. That's so exciting. <laughs> I know. I'm excited about it. Um, so back to you, because uh, that's what we're here for. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? So I think what I've learned about the world is I feel like there is a lot of hope. I feel like working with trauma, we do see, you know, a lot of people who feel like there can't be a different way of walking through the world or feeling in the world, mm -hmm. right? Like they, this pain has happened and it's forever. And I feel like through EMDR and seeing like a monumental change um, and, and an organic change in the brain, right? And so it's not like we're white knuckling it through these experiences, like trying to make it stick. It's an, it's an organic change. And seeing people go from being, you know, various levels of, of non-functional, right? To being like thriving human beings who are happy and love their lives. I, you know, for me, like, it just gives me so much hope for what's possible. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, that's like, that's what keeps me coming back every day to my job. I love my job. I feel like I, it's so humbling and it's, it's such a privilege to be on this part of the journey with people that I think hope, I think, you know, uh, before I saw a lot of pain before I had these tools, right. And you see it and you don't necessarily know, like you can sit and talk with your friend or you can, you know, um, create some space for that to be or exist. But like, I feel like through this work, I see a different outcome. I see a different future that's possible for people. Ooh, what it. have I learned about myself? Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't know I could sit for this long. <laughs> I will say that that is the Absolutely. hardest part of this job because anyone who knows me personally knows I'm like an energizer bunny. I'm just like moving and I like to move and I like to be outside. And so that's been really hard. But I will say, honestly, I think the thing that I've learned about myself the most um, that has been new is that I really love like the business side of our work. Like I really... Say that again. I do too. And you know, all all my um 
most therapist friends are probably tired of hearing me talk oh, about sure. it. But, for sure. but it's kind of a it's a it's kind of a fun part, you know, owning your own business. It's uh, you know, absolutely the business too. You know, you're the mm-hmm. CEO, COO, and CFO, and I can tell you that the CFO is always an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> that guy. <laughs> I, I agree. Yeah, I just think for me, like part, like one of my most favorite things to do um, is talk about EMDR, which is like what we're doing today, right? Like I like talking about EMDR and I like having that like initial experience and getting people excited about the work because I know that one of the things that we hear a lot in our profession is like, I called a thousand therapists and no one's returned my call. And we have a policy here that we return phone calls within 24 hours we aspire to do that. We are. I, would, I, I would say 98% of the time we do it. I would say um, there's, there's occasionally times when we don't, but like talking to that person on the phone, going back to that hope piece, right? Like hearing that, like, okay, maybe something can change. Like maybe that part. Right. And I love like doing this kind of stuff and talking about EMDR and like the education piece and um, going out there and like networking, which I know is not everybody's jam in this field, but like, I like people. I don't know. I just like being around people. That's not to say I don't love therapy because I absolutely do. That's mm. it's that's the best part to me. Right. I just can't believe. I think three years ago, I would have told you like, I don't want to own my own business. I don't want to be the face of anything. I'm terrified of standing in front of people and, and talking about something. What if they tell me I'm wrong? And now I'm like, I can tell you I'm fucking wrong all day long. I don't, you know, it'll be okay. <laughs> like, it's okay. Like I am wrong. And I tell my clients that all the time. Like, you know, right. sometimes I'm going to mess up. I'm, I'm going to get it wrong. Right. And, yeah. and hopefully the relationship will hold that too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that business side is fun. It's exciting. And it's very different than the type, than our, than our, um, in the trenches, hands-on working with our clients, which I think is fun. Well, I mean, it's necessary. We, we have to, we, I mean, we have to be proficient at it to be able to do what we want to do, which is the therapy, you know, and it's absolutely, um, and they don't teach you that stuff in school. Oh my gosh. No, they don't. Yeah. And I feel like we talk about that a lot in this field about how they don't. But I also wonder, like, with how full our brains are, could would like would that have like absorbed? And like maybe that's one just, class. Like just one, one class. class would have been good. So they had like we had one teacher who talked a little bit about like um, overhead and finances and like deciding like how you identify like your salary, which I don't think a lot of people do. Um as far as like to that teaching piece. And I thought that was really helpful, but other than that, I don't think okay. I could have stuffed anything else in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> it was full. <laughs> um, you know, you, you listen to people's awful traumas um, all day. What, what do you do to take care of yourself? Um, I like to hang out with a five and a half year old a lot. And I think that for me, that is like a really big shift in reality, right? Because it's like, we're talking about imagination. We're talking about like being excited about the world and all of the pieces all the time. And I think um, that's a really big part of it for me is like just trying to be grounded in that when I I go home. Um, It's hard. I can imagine. It is hard. I will say another thing that I do to take care of myself that has 
been like, I don't think about it anymore, but comes up a lot with when I talk about like pop culture with people is I've really shifted the type of like entertainment I consume. So like I, as a general rule, don't consume anything that is like horror or gory or like hurting people or has like realistic themes of anything traumatic um, or anything like drama, like interpersonal issues typically, because that feels to me like I'm consuming entertainment from the, the pain, real pains that I see every day. And one, I just don't even find it entertaining at all whatsoever anymore. But that's been a really big, a big shift for me, like watching things that are, you know, fun or lighthearted or, you know, are more uplifting has been a big shift. I also think that, um, for me, a really big thing is like being outside. So like being with my horse, I like to run. I like to listen to music and dance around like a crazy person who's dancing with a five and a half year old. (laughs) Right. And so I think like, I don't generally outside of work, take myself very seriously. Right. And I think for me, that kind of like helps decompress it all. Totally. Yeah. And I'm not perfect at that. That sounds really beautiful and well put together. And just any, any potential clients for, or anyone who's going through therapy, like we don't have it all together. I don't get it all. Right, no. Well, right? I mean, that's why, that's why we call self-care a practice. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and in the pandemic. Whew, yeah. We've all been uh, fighting an uphill battle there. Yeah. Um, how would you define happiness? So you gave me this sheet of questions that you're asking me ahead of time. And like, this is the one that I was like, I have no clue. Like how, like, I don't know. Like, and I don't know if that's like a good thing that I don't know or a bad thing. (laughs) I think part of it that came up for me was that like, I feel like I'm living the life that I want to live. And so I Mm -hmm. feel like I don't know how to put a finger on happiness because I feel happy. Mm -hmm. I feel fulfilled in my work and in my personal life. And like, there's always places to grow, but honestly, I just feel like I'm not searching for that. And I think Mm -hmm. that's kind of the answer that I came, I came to was like, I don't know because I have it. It's, it's all the things. Yeah. Right. And I would say that I'm, I'm also really blessed to have the things that I have and that, and that I can say that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, a couple uh, vulnerable questions here. We've got a few questions left. Uh, What is the most embarrassing moment you've had as a clinician? Okay. So I don't know if this is embarrassing, but it is the, like, it's a new story and it is my favorite story. (laughs) So since the pandemic, we have been offering, or I have been offering like outside sessions to a few clients who I'm seeing in person. I'm not seeing a lot of clients in person. Um, And we have like a really nice yard at our office and we have some beautiful trees. And I've been doing this for a while. Like, I mean, I even sat out there in some freezing ass cold weather um, with blankets doing doing it outside, right? So I'm doing a session outside like I do and I'm doing EMDR with a client and their eye, they have their tappers and their headphones on and they're in it and they're experiencing the things and their eyes are closed and I start getting shit on my birds. 
That's awful. And it just kept going. Like, oh no. And at first I was like, what is falling out of the tree? Cause it wasn't, it was like blue and black, like blue. Like it looks like someone's like, a, <laughs> yeah. So I was like, oh, are there berries? And it just kept happening. And this was like at the end of a section. And one of the things in the QMDR that we always say is hold your chair, right? Like you need to like, you know, you need to hold, like they're in the middle of it, like hold your chair. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm being like pelted with poop. There is poop like on my blanket. There is poop like on my clipboard. There's (laughs) poop on my little machine. And I'm looking over at my client and they're, you know, deep into this work and they're not getting pooped on. (laughs) And so I'm like, I'm going to sit here and get pooped on until this session is over. Because I'm not interrupting this process. (laughs) That's dedication. Good for you. (laughs) And the session ended. My client had no idea. And I um, walked away from the tree. (laughs) And is literally the funniest thing that I think I've experienced in therapy so far. Um, That's a a new one. Haven't heard that before. That's a good one. Oh my gosh. It's just like, it's perfect. I mean, it's like, you can't, you can't write that shit. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, next vulnerable question. (laughs) Are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? Yeah, I am in therapy and um, I love my therapist. Bless, bless her heart. Um, I think being a therapist, therapist is, you know, an interesting dynamic for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And an interesting thing that we don't, always see a lot, but, you know, as part of our clinical work and as part of our self work, it's generally recommended that we do go through our own therapy. Yeah. Um, and I have been through EMDR therapy and I have been through talk therapy. Um, and I think that that's something that's really important. And I think even if like something's not going on, right. Quote unquote, like it's important to be engaged in that, especially as like, in trauma work, there's what's called vicarious trauma, which I'm sure mm-hmm. that you're you're aware of. Yeah. And what should I explain what that is? I don't know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Vicarious trauma is essentially like hearing about other people's traumas um, and and kind of getting that kind of stuck to you, right? Like it becomes part of your nervous system and experience, even though you haven't experienced it. And it happens a lot with people like um, like first therapists responders. and first responders all different kinds of professions where you're consistently experiencing other people's traumas. Um, and I think that that's a really important part of our field is especially in trauma work, especially in, well, in my opinion, of course I'm biased because I work with trauma, but like kind of shaking, getting the space to kind of shake that off, make sure that that's not sticking to us, working through it when we feel like we are impacted by something Otherwise we can't hold space. Like if my nervous system held every single piece and internalized every single thing that I had ever heard, like (laughs) my career would be over right now. Right. Um, And so I I think I take that very seriously, um, you know, going, going to my appointments and yeah, bless my therapist's heart. I think she's wonderful. And and I, I really enjoy working with her and I, it, some therapists do this, but like I have chosen a therapist who is out of our area so that there's no like boundary issues and no um, issues with dual relationships. It's just something difficult when therapists look for therapists, right? Yeah, no, I, I, I do the same thing. Mm-hmm. 
Have you seen that that like meme online that says, I asked my therapist who their therapist was and went to see them, asked them the same thing until I got to the final boss therapist and defeated them with my train wreck of a life. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> or like one of my one of my previous clients, um, you know, I'm very open that I'm in therapy and I think it's so important. Um, <laughs> so we were talking and my client, I think, asked me, I was like, yeah, of course I have a therapist. I think it's really important. And my client was like, so I have a grand therapist? <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. I think I've told that story before on here, but I love it. it is that I'm is a like. great story. Well, yeah, and I mean, like, not that everyone's going to be engaged in therapy all the time, right? right. Therapists. Um, but I think if we don't go to therapy or we don't see value in that for ourselves, like what, like, what does that mean for our clients that there's not value in that for them? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is value. And even for the clients that we work with in like sometimes taking breaks or like maybe not being engaged in therapy weekly or whatever, right? Like life changes, but you know, if we're not doing that work, you know, what does that say about how we feel about our work? Right. And I mean, I, I just have concerns about a therapist who's never been in therapy. I mean, I think it's part of like acknowledging and understanding the power dynamics that can come into play or that do come into play um, is sitting on the other side of the couch, you know? Um, Yeah. I, I think it's, I think it should be required (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, a lot of programs, at least when people are in school, require that as part of the program. Um, I know that that wasn't required in my program, but I think it was really helpful. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've covered a lot of stuff today. Um, is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you and your practice? Um. Yeah, I think one of the big things that I like to emphasize and like I emphasize a lot now with our business is that, um, you know, we have a wonderful group of therapists and we're actually, we actually have just hired two new therapists for our group. Everyone in our group is EMDR trained, right? That's our primary modality for our group. And, you know, a lot of times people will speak with me and they'll want to work with me, which yay me. But I'm also not like, don't oftentimes have openings for new clients. And so one of the things that I like people to know too, is like in our group, like that education piece with EMDR and continuing education is like the foundation of our work here and making sure that every clinician that works with us provides phenomenal services. And that, you know, as a consultant, as, you know, as a business owner, as a EMDR therapist, like I would stand behind and refer any of my existing clients to anyone on my staff. Mm-hmm. And be um, and know that their work is going to be very high quality, right? And yeah. so I think that that's super important. And and our staff, they're phenomenal. Like they're wonderful therapists. And I feel really blessed that we are adding more therapists to our our group. Um, so I think that's the thing that I would say, like kind of just knowing that like, um, yes, I'm doing this podcast, which is really wonderful. And I feel really, really blessed to have this opportunity with you, Noah, but we also have like a lot of other clinicians who are doing very similar work in our practice, um, who, 
you know, even if maybe the F-bombs aren't for you, like we have a variety of personalities in, in our practice. Good deal. Well, um, you know, Sarah, it was a real pleasure having you on the show today. And uh, anything you want to leave our listeners on? I don't think so. I think that was all. I think I left it all on the table. How did, how did that go? Good. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week, who will feature Kim Gold, licensed marriage and family therapist, who will be speaking about her practice and area of specialty, eating disorders, body image issues, and compulsive exercise. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash NextQuestPodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.